Welcome, everyone, to DEI After Five, the show that focuses on topics across diversity, equity, and inclusion with some of the brightest minds in the industry. Here's your hostess, inclusive culture curator and coach, Sasha Thompson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of DEI After Five. Now, anytime I am talking to someone about the industry and doing the work in this space, one of the first questions I ask them is, what have what work have you done internally, right? Like, what have you really investigated about yourself and why you're showing up in this space? And for so many people, they jump into this work because they're passionate about it but they don't interrogate why they're passionate about it. What is it that draws them to this work? And also what are the things about this work that they need to be mindful of, right? There are certain triggers. And so today my guest is Dr. Caprice Hollins, who has written a book kind of about, actually not kind of, she has written a book about this topic. Um, And so I just, without further ado, I wanna bring her onto the show. So Dr. Caprice, welcome. Thank you, Sasha. It's good to be here. So for people that may not know who you are, can you give us a little bit about your background and how you got into this space? Yeah, uh, I'm a clinical psychologist is what my doctorate degree is in. And I essentially minored in what is now referred to as diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. I think you know, this was before we were really having the conversation like we are today. I think we go through these phases in our country where we're talking about racism and then we're not. Mm-hmm. And graduate school was really the first time that I interrogated how I have been socialized. Um, even just looking at my privilege as a light-skinned woman, noticing like that I stereotype and and how that can turn into bias. And I it was liberating. I wanted other people to be able to go on that journey so that, you know, they can contribute to being change agents, essentially. But that's where it started, graduate school for me. You know, and it's so interesting because, you know, for me, it was undergrad, grad school when I started to not necessarily unpack who I was, but really open my eyes to other people, Mm -hmm. right? And again, not you know, that I was dismissive or anything like that, but diving into other cultures and Mm -hmm. understanding like their history within the United States States in the context of how they show up today. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's interesting how these academic experiences kind of shape how we approach this work, right? Um, The first, I think one of my first book reports, not book reports, but reports, in grad school was around tribal colleges and understanding mm-hmm. the impact of tribal colleges. And so that was just an, an eye-opening experience uh, for me, especially as someone who grew up on the East Coast of this country where there aren't a lot of tribal colleges, right? There are a lot of tribes, um, a good number, especially in Virginia where you're tied to those, but understanding about the higher education system that's a part of that. You know, that was a very um, interesting dynamic uh, for me to to study and research. And so I want to ask you a little bit about 
your transformation in this space mm-hmm. and having some of those aha and awakening moments, right? Was there one specific situation or a moment that really gave you pause? Mm, gosh, you know, that's a good question. I, I I wouldn't say that there was one. I, I always knew that racism existed, but I'd never talked about it formally. My mom's white. My older brothers and sisters are white from her first marriage. I, I do have a sister that's also black, but we didn't really talk about racism. My mom thought, you know, if she loved us well enough. She knew racism existed, was active to some degree in the 60s. Uh, she wasn't naive to it. But it wasn't until graduate school that I started looking at uh, uh, specifically race and racism and the impact on Black people, like depression or mm-hmm. racial and ethnic identity development, something I'd never heard of. Um, this idea that I have privilege, like I was like, you know, I understand why white people get defensive around that. Like we don't <laughs> really look at or understand that, you know, we benefit, I benefit simply because my skin is light. Uh, and so the, I was just like, oh my, I was, it's just like a sponge, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and I've certainly, you know, since then, so I went in to be a clinical psychologist, but I came out of it really wanting to like teach and, you know, uh, eventually ended up starting my own company, but I was really fascinated with the dynamics of race. And I think there's something different about like understanding that racism exists, even understanding the ways in which it impacts you. There's another issue, which is how it functions and plays out and sustains itself within our society. And so that became a whole nother like kind of, um, you know, eagerness that I had around just wanting to understand how it plays out. Yeah. Oh, there's so much there. (laughs) Because <laughs> again, you know, our, our I think our stories are very parallel. Um, you know, as you were talking, I, I remember taking an undergrad a class called ethnocultural psychology. Mm. And it was a summer school class of all things. And I'm like, who wants to go to school during the summer? Mm. But this was the only time they were offering that class. And when I tell you, like you said, you were a sponge, like there was she could have just continued to give more stuff after the class was over and I would have still been there just taking it to me. Um, Because it's, again, it's it's just, it's those aha moments. It's the eye-opening things. It's how we operate or work in, walk in this world, in this space, in the skin that we're in. Yeah. Now having some additional education and experience and how that just reshapes how you look at the world. Right. Yes. Nothing about you necessarily has changed physically, but emotionally and mentally, you're a different person. And so you're, you notice things that you probably never noticed before. So but, when I'm hearing you, I'm, I'm like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's- yeah. yeah. You know, one of the um, I would say one of the most uh, like one of the the things that I studied and learned about that changed me the most was looking at William Cross's model on uh, Black uh, identity development. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, I'd never heard of that at this time. And, you know, he he's 
he was the first person that he ever created a model. Now there's lots of them out there, white yeah. identity development, multicultural, all of these. But he was the first one that wrote about it. And as I'm reading it, this understanding that um, that our that it's not enough, kind of like Eric Erickson's model that looked at like what are what do people go through as they grow and and age and that sort of thing. And essentially, uh, Dr. Cross was saying, you know, that's great, Eric Erickson, but you're forgetting <laughs> how racism impacts uh, and yeah. shapes our identity. And so, as I'm looking at this model and seeing myself reflected in it, not all of it, but certainly these ways in which I tried to make white people feel comfortable being mm. around me. That's not, you know, his language, but mm. also I went through the stage in graduate school, Sasha, that he describes where I go from kind of like, if I just work hard, if I'm really nice, if I do these things, then like people will treat me, uh, you know, uh, yeah. you know, in the way that I deserve to be treated. And I could never make sense of why I wasn't getting back what I was putting in. And mm. so this model helped me to understand that this is what racism does. And so I went through this stage that he describes of anger, where I was like, I was PO'd, right? He, I love the language he uses. He goes, he says something like, you realize you've been tricked into thinking Negro ideas. Yeah. You know, meaning that, again, like you thought if you played the game right, if you did what people said that you were supposed to do in order to get ahead, then things would work out for you. And when you realize that the, the that the, you know, what do they, how do you say it? Like everything is stacked against you. Mm -hmm. You know, he describes this emotion of anger. Yeah. Uh, and so I went through that while yeah. I was in graduate. Yeah, it's very, very fascinating. But that has helped me to normalize that, like, it's okay. Other people are doing it too. Just don't get stuck in one of those stages. Get to that place of, you know, of liberation. Yeah. And that that's actually one of the um, models that I we learned in that class, right? Mm -hmm. So, oh, and just pair that with uh, Spike Lee had a movie out, uh, Drop Squad. Mm, mm. And so we kind of went through these model cross and I camera. There was one other that we went through a similar one um, and then watched the movie. And you talk about like that anger phase and or people saying you're not black enough. Mm, mm. Right. And so trying to to deal with that or trying to align so much so with the majority culture right? That you forget aspects of yourself or you let go of aspects of yourself that make you who you are. That are the things that your family has instilled in you, right? And so now there's this rejection of family and culture in order to get to a different place. And so now it's this, oh, you're a sellout. So it's all of these layers that, that happen. And so, you know, what you're saying, and, and I think what we both experienced is when you're studying and you're looking at these models and you're interrogating yourself and where do I fall within mm -hmm. these spectrums, right? Within these models. Um, and then you do a little bit more research and then you start to have those aha moments of like, oh, I've gone through that phase. Oh, I remember when, mm -hmm. oh, they say this is coming next. Like, oh, how do I prepare myself <laughs> for that, you know? 
And so, you know, as I said at the top, what was what's so interesting to me, and I think why I approach this work the way that I do, and it looks like the same way, you know, why you approach the work the way you do is because you've taken that time to do some of that introspection. You've taken the time to really start to unpack who you are in a very different way, mm -hmm. right? And so for folks that are listening, you know, we have a number of people, you know, practitioners, HR folks, just leaders um, within their organizations. What are some of the ways outside of academia? Because we can both go down that rabbit hole. Um, but what are some of the other ways that they can start to interrogate how they're showing up um, in these spaces? Oh, that's a good question. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up just for a moment, just to okay. help me with this conversation. Uh, so one of the things that we teach is that there are four bodies of work mm -hmm. that we all need to do to get better at engaging across cultures and getting to that place where we can contribute to undoing systems of oppression. And what you're getting at is that first body of work, which is mm -hmm. awareness work, right? And awareness work is the work that is about you and no one else, right? Mm -hmm. It's the hardest work because, you know, I, when I'm in graduate school, I've are, I'm in my thirties. I've, I've had all these years to kind of create this sense of how I see myself to be. And then all of a sudden now I'm confronted with something like privilege or bias or, and I'm realizing that there's ways in which I've colluded with racism, ways in which I've done harm, ways in which I've, you know, really kind of, what would you say, like even internalized that oppression, mm -hmm. let's say, of you mentioned earlier, and I'd love to talk about that too, not being black enough, right? Mm -hmm. I do think, and so your question of how do we like begin that journey or what is some work that people can do without, you know, going through uh, graduate school, that's a, a privilege for many of us in this country. You know, it's a tough question because there's so many different ways. Right. So for me in graduate school, I was going through therapy and I was talking about race. I was talking about things like, you know, uh, my internship wanted us to carry a pager. You know, that dates me. Right. And I didn't want to carry a pager and I couldn't figure out why. And so I'm talking with my therapist about this and I'm realizing that. I was worried that I would be lumped in with other black people and then be stereotyped as, well, she must be up to no good. She must be selling drugs or associated with the gang. And, you know, there was nothing about me that appeared in that way, but it's a way in which I had internalized those stereotypes. I'll give you another example. Uh, I was at an internship where I realized I was at an inpatient um, uh, uh, facility and I realized I was working more effectively with uh, my clients that were not black mm -hmm. and I couldn't figure it. So I bring this to uh, my therapist and I'm talking about it with her and she helps me to see that I think that that client, my black clients need me in a way, need me more, need my help more than my white clients, my Asian clients, the other clients. See, what mm. I've done is I've internalized really an, a sense of inferiority mm -hmm. that black people need more help. So I was doing for them things that they could do for themselves. 
right? I mean, to me, that was fascinating, right? But here's the thing that I find is that people reject looking at those hard places that bring about shame and guilt and embarrassment. And for me, it brought about liberation. So now I can look at where else is this showing up in my life? Mm -hmm. Where do I find myself surprised? I asked to speak to the person in charge. I remember one time this black man comes out in a wheelchair. Now I, I can I can recognize, oh, you had a stereotype, Caprice. What was that stereotype? Who did you think was going to come out, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's that leaning in to those moments that like something internally isn't aligning or feeling right. So rather than pushing it aside, I'm saying, what's that about? And let me interrogate it. Sometimes it's with someone like you, Sasha, a critical friend that will help me, a therapist, a mentor, reading more about it. I mean, there's lots of different ways, but I do think talking about it, acknowledging what's in us is, is the beginning of the journey. And truth is, that's a really difficult thing for us to do. It is. It is so, it's not only difficult, it's scary. And I think that's the piece for um, a lot of people. It's, I I don't want to do it because I'm scared of what I may discover about myself. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so it's so much easier and it aligns with white supremacist culture, but it's so much easier to avoid, right. Conflict, avoid all of these things. And like, let's just go to this. Let's stay positive. Let's stay like, let's, uh, let's just ignore all right. of these things. It's in the past. Why do we need to dwell on it? But no, because the past is what shapes how you show up today. Absolutely. So, you know, and, you know, as I was thinking about your response and the stories that you shared, you know, so much of that. And again, it goes back to sitting in that discomfort mm. of where did those thoughts first originate? Yeah. Right. And that also may make you think about, OK, but I have really great parents. I have really great family. And it's not saying that they aren't great, but so much of those stereotypes are so much of the, the values and the things that we carry with us in this work is shaped by those experiences. And um, so for so many, I feel um, it's hard to really hold that. You know, yeah. one so, of the things that was helpful for me, and this is where the racial and ethnic um, I, I black identity development uh, model came in for me. Hmm. When I realized that it wasn't my fault, yeah. that this is what racism does. And then when, when we don't interrogate it, when we don't deconstruct how we've been socialized, how we really can't help but be impacted by the messages that we've been inundated with, having nothing to do with our parents, having nothing to do with being strong or, you know, proud of our uh, racial identity, but everything to do with the power of racism. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. it helped me to uh, like really fight to like, what do I want to say? Not just deconstruct it, but work to reconstruct a new mm -hmm. way of 
being in the world, right? Mm-hmm. I was passively for many years unaware, allowing for uh, like this internalizing of inferiority of people who look like me, inferiority of my own self, and mm-hmm. not, not even aware that it was slowly seeping its way from the moment I was born, from the moment I came into this world, it's seeping its way into me. And and then you know this, Sasha, while I'm internalizing inferiority, guess what white people are internalizing, right? They're internalizing superiority. Our society is also giving them messages, giving us messages about white people, white people messages about us. And I decided, oh yeah, I'm not living my life this way. You know, it's so, oh my gosh, girl, we could go on forever with this because, (laughs) you know, and because, you know, the aha moment I just had was part of my challenge was my parents came to this country from a majority black country. And so there was always black excellence. And, you know, and so surrounded by this black excellence. And so there was never this inferiority that was a part of the psyche. Mm. Right. So they come, they come to the United States and it's, it's culture shock because they're just like, this isn't what we're accustomed to seeing, you know, or being a part of, um, especially growing up, you know, raising my sister and I in Virginia of all Mm. places. Right. So you got the South plus (laughs) Two black people that are just like I don't understand, <laughs> you know, any of this racism yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, they don't understand it. So there was no box for them to to be in. Yeah, because they didn't come from a place that boxed them in. And so, what's very interesting to me was growing up with the audacity to understand my my superiority in this world mm. came head first with. Mm but that's not who you're supposed to be. Mm, mm, mm. And so it's those challenges of, I need to put you in a box. I need to put you in your place. Yeah. Because you don't know, you're not jumping in that box. So I I need to put you there. And that's what I had to, you know, grapple with so much of my education and my career and, you know, being told I wasn't college material. Mm. um, And so I should go to a trade school. Mm. I'm like, really? Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Black guidance counselor, I would talk to you, right? And ended up going to the College of William and Mary, right? Mm-hmm. Getting two degrees from there, going to Johns Hopkins. So for someone who was trying to be, they were trying to place into a box, I didn't fall for that. So it's just fascinating to me as we're talking about this awareness and we're talking about that introspection, <laughs> yeah. it it also, it's a lot to unpack, especially if you are working in places and spaces where folks are of the global majority, right? Because now that's a mindset, sh- mindset shift. It's that they aren't minorities, they're the global majority. Mm-hmm. And so operating in that space, how do you then show up? Yeah. There's so many things that you're saying. I know this is your interview for me, but I do want to ask you a question because one of the things that, so all of our work is within a U.S. 
context. So, Mm -hmm. um, but I do get to, you know, meet people who come from all over the world. And one of the things that I have come to learn is that even within like countries, um, places where, um, being a person of color isn't really the identity, right? You don't identify as like, it's not about, are you black? Everybody's black, right? But that there's still often this light skin, dark skin dynamic. Absolutely. Right? So, colonization, yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. So even when I hear you say like, you know, certainly your 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 parents and that, you know, the the growing up in spaces where those protective factors are there, to help you build a strong sense of self. The truth is, is that the colonization throughout our world has still placed a kind of a positive association with white and light. Like, and what I'm really getting at is, I don't think anyone can get away, get move away from those messages of whether you're Latino, Latina, Latine, whatever. Like, it is light skin. The closer in proximity you are to whiteness, yep. the more privileges that you tend to have. And so I'm wondering, like, how do you see that kind of playing out as you talked about, like, you know, that it, that you, you know, you have this these parents and this experience where mm-hmm. Black was associated really in positive ways. So it's so funny you say that because my mom and I had this conversation this summer where they're also very both countries that my parents are from are very um, British. They are British colonies, Mm -hmm. uh, St. Vincent and Barbados. Mm -hmm. And so Barbados just got their true independence, right? No longer tied to the the Royal empire um, in the last year, two, two years. Um, And so it was always called little England. And when I think about like the education systems, when I think about like, what my my mom and my grandparents um, saw as what was right, it was if it was right if it was British, mm-hmm. right? So again, it wasn't a color, but it was the closer you were aligned to British sensibilities, European sensibilities, right? Then the better you were. So if you spoke the Queen's English, you were more educated. You were seen as more educated versus coming from the field or the streets or, you know, what have you. So it's a different, it's the same, but it's different because now to your point, you're not looking at um, ethnicity, right? But you're still looking at race. You're still looking at skin color because that's very much there as well too. Um, But it definitely was tied to education and being aligned with royal like that royal connection yeah yeah and and when it's education again it's not just education it's who's who's superior and who's inferior right and we do it tribally we do it you know caste systems we do it you know i mean there's so many ways across you know across our world well, yeah. fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, and that's why I said we could talk for days on this topic because I think when people say, yeah, I've done, you know, the internal work, they've done an assessment. They've done, you know, some little thing to say, oh, yep, this this, this is my personality test. But it's so much more to interrogate yeah. 
about who you are and how you show up and why you show up in certain ways. Um, And we didn't, I'm just looking at our time too. Like we didn't even get into triggers and knowing what triggers you because there are certain things that I know trigger me. And I've gotten to a place where I can either call it and say, I know that this, that's going to trigger me. So I'm not going to do that work in that space. Or I create an environment where I'm like, okay, friend, I need you to be right here with me while we go into this. And I'll pull you when I feel like I'm about to be triggered so you can step in, right? Like those partnerships. Um, But again, that takes work. Yeah. Yeah. I always say, you know, it's, it's easier in race dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. It's easier to lash out or to avoid than it is to engage. So, you know, yeah. I, you know, it's easier for me, Sasha, to come to you and say, you're not going to believe what this white woman said to me today. It's a whole lot harder for me to actually talk to that white woman who triggered me. <laughs> right? And yeah. so we, a part of the interrogation is not just looking at what are your triggers, but also what's your style when, you know, do, mm-hmm. you know, fight, flight or freeze kind of, you know, thing when you are triggered. And Mm. so if you want to participate, if you have the capacity, emotionally, physically, financially, to participate in helping our country um, really mitigate, uh, disrupt racism, then this personal work is required of us so that we are not doing more harm than we are doing good. So when I think about like the ways in which Uh, I get triggered, Uh, a part of that is to know where, what is mine? How do I discern, like, what is my stuff? That trigger becomes a cue for me that I still need to work on this. And also, truthfully, I have to give myself grace sometimes because I am human and I do respond in ways that cause us to lose a potential ally or, you know, doesn't help people of color to, as you talked about earlier, do that awareness work. But I, I am able to own, oh, this is mine. This is not theirs. This is not because of how they showed up. Like, I'm not, I am not in control of you. I'm only mm-hmm. in control of me. And so if I can keep looking at me, then I can, I, you know, I feel like I can contribute more to, you know, being this change, change agent that yeah. I myself as yeah. but triggers are, are fascinating one that used to be for me are these experiences of not being seen as black enough you had mentioned that mm. you know, with mm-hmm. dark black women that was really hard for me to understand and I never understood it as a little girl I knew that my behavior was working really hard to prove to particularly black women darker skinned black women that I was enough and I was doing this whole dance. But again, it wasn't until graduate school that I started to unpack it. And it's interesting to see how that's no longer a trigger for me because I understand how we're playing out with one another, right? That colorism, what Mm -hmm. happened, what white people have really set up for us to do to one another. And Mm -hmm. once I understood that, then I could have empathy uh, rather than, you know, this kind of, well, that's not fair. That's not right. Why are you treating me that way? I didn't do anything to, to you know, to you. It's like, well, I didn't have to do anything to you. So I right. Yeah. Yeah. And I represent something yeah. in this country that, that yeah. is very unfair. 
very unfair. There's an unlevel playing field. And that that dynamic shows up, the impact of that shows up in our cross-cultural interactions. Absolutely. Dr. Caprice, like I said, we could talk for days uh, <laughs> on this. Um, I have two more questions for you. So the first thing, we didn't even get to talk about the book. So tell people about the book and where they can find it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we are actually talking about the, the book Inside Out, the Equity Leader's Guide to uh, Dismantling Undoing Institutional Racism. And uh, I named it Inside Out because it's essentially about how we're going to lead this work. We've got to do the internal work. Uh, in order to lead others, right? And then then it also uh, describes a lot of things that you can do in your organizations to help move race conversations forward. And, you know, I wrote the book because I was the first director of equity and race for Seattle Public Schools. I did not have a guide. I just had my degree, had no idea what I was doing. So I kind of wrote the book that I wished that I would have had and um, to help guide me. And really it's for anyone. There's strategies in there for having conversations. There are things for assessing your organization, looking at triggers, uh, how to have these difficult conversations. It was published by um, New Society Publishers. So you can just go online and simply Google uh, Inside Out, the Equity Leader's Guide to undoing institutional racism. So. I love it. And then my last question for you, how do you fill your cup? Like, how do you take care of yourself as you're doing this work? And kind of, I mean, this is really the internal work, right? Like that's a lot to sit with. How, what do you do to take care of yourself? Oh, it's such a good question. I used to be the person that told everybody else to take care of themselves, but never really did it myself. Yeah. Uh, you know, I take real breaks now. So, you know, it's not just going on a vacation, but like taking a real 15 minute break, moving away from my computer and taking a real lunch break, um, going for walks, um, uh, talking with people. I, 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 uh, I really find a lot of kind of peace in being able to talk about the ways in which I show up that are not healthy so that I can show up in new ways. And then also I always say, like, if I want to, if, if I'm meeting you and I want to talk about what I do for a living, I will tell you I do race relations work. But if I don't want to talk about it, I'll tell you I do anti-racism work because, you know, nothing will push white people away quicker than saying anything having to do right. with racism. But so I'm also very mindful of like, you know, when I don't want to talk about it, I don't. And I love reading yeah. books about, you know, uh, like fairies and dragons and women with swords <laughs> and kick butt. I love it. Uh, you know, I'm not always heavy and serious. I love it. I love it. Dr. Caprice, thank you so much for joining me and having this conversation. I think it's one that so many people need to, to listen to and, and pause, right? Because again, folks jump into this work, not necessarily knowing all of these things about themselves and, and really interrogating who they are and why they are. So thank you for indulging me in, in this conversation today. 
And thank you all for joining us for this episode of DEI After Five. I hope that you are able to walk away with a few nuggets, something you haven't thought about, something that gives you pause. So you can find us here every Tuesday at 5.15 p.m. Eastern on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, have a good one.